What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 9 of Filibustered. I'm Morgan Edwards. And I'm Robert Nishimwe. And so we were off last week, back now, uh, and in the meantime, our podcast was officially approved by Spotify. So if you're on there, listen to us on there, tell your friends who are on Spotify. Um, we're also on Google Podcasts, Apple, of course, and several others. And a lot of people were asking me about Spotify, so there's no more excuse now. No more excuse. No. There's no. no more excuse. If you're not listening to Filibuster, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life, man? <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about everything that happened in the last couple of weeks. First, we're going to be talking about Scott Pruitt, our man, his resignation. Then we're going to be talking about foreign policy and the last couple of weeks uh, with what Trump has been doing. Uh, then we're going to have our crazy story of the week. And then finally today, we are talking to our friend and Senate Youth alum, Cassidy Sedonis from Virginia. So stick around for that, and we hope you enjoy. So our first story today, bad news for Filibuster Pod, but good news for America. Scott Pruitt is out. America, you can rejoice. The man, the myth, the legend, swamp monster Scott Pruitt, the worst EPA administrator in history, is no longer the head of the EPA. Rob, you want the good news or the bad news first? <laughs> I think they need some good news after everything that's happened in the U.S. Okay. in the last two years. So, the good news, we no longer have to deal with his insane ethical breaches and corruption. Bad news is that his replacement is, you guessed it, a former coal lobbyist. Yes, <laughs> former coal lobbyist Andrew Wheeler will be taking over at the EPA. In addition to his history of working for Massey Energy, among other coal groups, he was a longtime aide to Senator James Inhofe, whom you may recall from his 2015 floor speech in which he literally brought a snowball to the Senate floor to demonstrate that climate change isn't real. So yeah, Andrew Wheeler, not exactly um, you know a Sierra Club kind of guy. But... Rob, the day has come. Scott Pruitt is out. What are we going to talk about now on Filibuster? Without him, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I mean, I mean, honestly, he was like our our favorite, you know, special guest to be featured, you know, <laughs> on the show, you know, on the pod. Uh, you know, look, and we and we've been saying, I mean, I, we were kind of prepared for this though, because it was like, you know, every single time something would happen, and we would have to talk about it in every single episode of Filibuster. So I think, you know, maybe we. We gave maybe Trump a little bit, you know, some, you know, evidence, a little bit, you know, some push. Like, you know what? This dude probably shouldn't be there in the first place, you know. But the bad thing is, even though we just got like a, a crazy person out of Trump's administration who is ruining the environment. Now we have a, well, same person who actually knows how to ruin the environment at a more <laughs> efficient and a much faster pace. So either way, <laughs> it's still terrible for us. It's just that. Andrew Wheeler is probably not going to be using taxpayer money to, you know, take first class, you know, plane tickets and whatnot. But other than that, I mean, we're <laughs> screwed, you know. <laughs> yeah, everyone's cheering Scott Pruitt's exit, and rightfully so. I was happy. But let's not forget who Andrew Wheeler is, right? You know, one official from the National Resources Defense Council said, quote, going from a train wreck to a house on fire doesn't give us comfort. <laughs> so that pretty much sums up what we're doing right here. I mean... Andrew Wheeler might not be must-see TV like Scott Pruitt, might not have all the you know ludicrous scandals, but he has the same vision about the environment. And 
arguably he's better at. He's you know more adept at taking away regulations than Scott Pruitt because Scott Pruitt was an outsider, and you know Andrew Wheeler has been doing this for a long time in Washington. Knows how to navigate the rules. It might actually be worse for the environment. We basically went from like a sludge monster to like a coal stack. That's just the reality of Trump's administration. I mean, you can be happy about one terrible person being out and being fired, but it's like it's one terrible person, you know, and then another one. So it's just it's a revolving door. It's a revolving door. You know, you can never be happy and satisfied with anybody in his administration because no matter who is being replaced, who's being fired, and who's being appointed again or whatnot, they're still going to pass policies which are going to be terrible for us and for our future. And that's just the reality of Andrew Wheeler. Yeah. Well, you know, the the great thing, on Scott Pruitt's last day in office, he moved to circumvent and limit on the manufacturing of, quote, super-polluting diesel trucks, undoing a 20-year effort embraced by both Democrats and Republicans to curb toxic emissions. So, you know, just as a little F you as I Go out right. the door and f you. Uh, just as a little screw you to my. Let me just screw you a little bit more before I leave. You screwed <laughs> yeah, me. But... I screw you. We screw each other, basically. But I thought it was funny what you said. Um, you know, Andrew Wheeler is like Scott Pruitt without the taxpayer money. I feel like we're gonna say that, and then, you know, one month down the road, Andrew Wheeler is using taxpayer money to buy like Ferraris for his kids or something, in classic Trump fashion. So we'll see. <laughs> when the Ferraris come up, let us know. Our second topic today, foreign policy in the last couple weeks, it's safe to say it's been an absolute disaster. First, Iran informed the UN of an increase in nuclear enrichment capacity, which is thought that they felt emboldened to do this after Trump pulling out of the Iran deal. As if that isn't enough, North Korea has increased the nuclear production at secret sites. Uh, one U.S. official said, quote, work is ongoing to deceive us on the number of facilities, the number of weapons, the number of missiles. Wait, Rob, so Trump shouldn't win a Nobel Prize? I, I thought he took care of everything. Oh, dang it. No, <laughs> Donald has to win a Nobel Peace Prize before he leaves, man. Well, I'm sorry, I, Donald, I guess it just ain't gonna work out for you right now. And this is why I say it's crucial that we get the right people in power. People actually have some knowledge uh, about world history, who have knowledge about international relations, who have knowledge about how government is supposed to operate, how foreign policy is supposed to operate. Because when you have a person like Trump, he goes on doing things that he thinks, you know, going to make him look good. And in the end, it's like, no, he's screwing us in the long term. Like this whole thing when he says, uh, North Korea is no longer a nuclear threat to the U.S. Everybody can go to sleep uh, safely <laughs> and happy. Donald, it doesn't work that way. You can't just change, you know, uh, the trajectory of a regime, you know, that has been going on for, what, decades and decades. You can't change that in, what, a, a three-day, four-day, however many-day uh, summit you had with Kim Jong-un. That's just not how, you know, foreign policy Without works, a deal. man. Without a deal. Yeah, with- yeah, with concessions and a deal that literally does nothing. A right. deal that has no way to actually enforce what's in the deal. It's just some vague proposals like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll denuclearize. And Kim Jong-un's like, ha, huh. you know, like, I'm going to break this agreement like I've broken the last 10. Like, with every exactly. other administration. He's playing Trump right now. The art of the deal, the deal maker. He's being outsmarted. Kim, yeah, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised, but Kim Jong-un is smiling somewhere right now because He's just milking Trump for concessions. 
And at the same time, he's like, I don't care what Trump says. I'm just going to keep increasing my nuclear capacity just like I've always done. Well, I think uh, Kim Kim and Trump are in some way, shape, or form alike. I think they're always like this whole thing of always looking uh, big and always being, you know, a showman and whatnot. And I think Kim understood that about Trump. And was like, you know, a summit? Yeah, let's do this thing. Trump is going to enjoy this. He's going to like all the cameras. You know, the whole world <laughs> looking at him. Yeah, maybe we're probably going to get something out of it. But we're just going to continue on doing whatever we've always been doing in the past. And so if that isn't enough, so we have Iran becoming more of a threat. We have North Korea becoming more of a threat. Russia is obviously a big aggressor and a, and a threat to our democracy. Well, Trump holds a rally recently and says, you know, President Putin is KGB. Putin's fine. He's fine. We are all fine. We're all people. Literally said that at a rally. So, yeah, the guy who annexed Crimea, invaded Ukraine, <laughs> murders dissidents, murders journalists who don't agree with him or who who criticize him, he deliberately bombs civilians in Syria. This is a brutal dictator who's messed with our election last year. And Trump's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, Putin's fine. I mean, think about if you're Putin right now. You've spent your life trying to weaken American democracy, and he's continuously been met with a unified front from the U.S. through the years. And now he's dealing with a literal toddler, and it's so easy for him. He's he, Putin is somewhere laughing his butt off right now, because it was so easy for him to just swindle Trump. And now Trump's, you know, a fan of Putin, if you will. He's He's sucking up to him, and Putin's just like, wow, that was easy. It's like this is the same guy who literally, literally infiltrated within our election, and you're cozying up to him. And you know, with this uh, upcoming uh, summit that he has with Putin, uh, it's being reported that Trump requested that him and uh, Putin have a um, a meeting by themselves with no other officials in there. So literally, <laughs> we won't know what they'll be talking about. And so I'm not sure if like we need to. Uh, recommend you know a playlist for them you know maybe put some <laughs> steve wonder you know i don't know you know new edition i'm not quite sure boys to men i, I don't know you know even maybe some mariah carey and beyonce in there i'm not sure you know what this <laughs> whole secretive meeting between them two is going to be like but it worries me because i think again trump does not understand um the way that international politics works and the way the foreign policy works you know it was just reported i think a few weeks ago that trump uh had told Macron that if he withdraws from the EU, that he will give uh, France a better uh, trade negotiation, a, tra- a better trade deal uh, if they're out of the EU. He does not understand that actually doing that is a way of emboldening, emboldening uh, Putin and the Russian uh, regime, you know. And, and this is why it's so scary for me that we have Trump in the presidency and he is doing all these things and saying things and you know, praising Putin, but not realizing that in the process, he's really ruining our standing in the world and how all of our allies uh, look at us and view at us now. And the GOP doesn't even seem to care. I mean, GOP nah. lawmakers even spent, there was eight of them that spent the 4th of July in Russia. The day after, it was reported that people in the UK were poisoned by a Russian nerve agent. And the Sen- Senate Intelligence Committee affirmed the U.S. intelligence community's conclusion that you know, Russia interfered in the election to help Trump win. They had the audacity to spend the 4th of July in Russia posing for propaganda photos with Russians. Don't ever tell me that, you know, Hmm. the GOP is the patriotic party, is the party for America. In any other administration, this would be 
the huge headline. This would be something that we talk about for days and the 24-hour news cycle would cover it. But it's just another blip, you know, on the radar. It's just, okay, you know, just just meeting with Putin. No big deal. Just going to maybe kill some journalists tonight. We'll see. Yeah, I, the, the optics of that are just um, and unprecedented, first of all. And, um, I mean, why in the world, out of all the countries, to spend your 4th of July <laughs> uh, weekend and celebration, why Russia in the first place? I Couldn't mean, have picked another on, country. Any... You do better. I mean, I would have been Antarctica, fine. Antarctica, for God's sake. Yeah, I would have been fine with, you know, Aruba or, um, you know, just have a vacation. <laughs> go to the beach, you know. <laughs> Take a vacation on some Caribbean island. Anywhere but Russia. They should go to Puerto Rico. They should go to Puerto Rico <laughs> and invest in that economy because we haven't done too well with the, with, because they're not doing too well with the devastation of the uh, hurricane and how we responded to that. So that's, maybe they should have went there and actually invested money in a U.S. territory to help uh, our American brothers and sisters out in Puerto Rico. So our final story today, our crazy story of the week. Boy, I I thought this one was an on your article at first. <laughs> This is a political article. It actually came out a couple weeks ago, but we've been saving it. Uh, and the article is titled, Meet the Guys Who Taped Trump's Papers Back Together. And so I'm just going to read an excerpt from this article. Solomon Lardy spent the first five months of the Trump administration working in the old executive office building, standing over a desk with scraps of paper spread out in front of him. Armed with rolls of clear scotch tape, Lardy and his colleagues would sift through large piles of shredded paper and put them back together, he said, quote, like a jigsaw puzzle. Sometimes the papers would just be split down the middle, but other times they would be torn into pieces so small they looked like confetti. It was a painstaking process that was the result of a clash between legal requirements to preserve White House records and President Donald Trump's odd and enduring habit of ripping up papers when he's done with them, what some people described as his, quote, unofficial filing system. Why is Donald Trump ripping up papers? I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Look, all I can say is the guy who's residing and six year on Pennsylvania Avenue is a toddler in chief. He is a toddler in chief. We have a president who throws tantrums and rips up papers that he's not supposed to because it's supposed to be kept as public record. But <laughs> as we know, Trump doesn't really have much knowledge about how government operates and works. And even if they tell him not to do so, he won't listen to them. <laughs> this is what we're faced with. This is the guy who's making foreign policy decisions. This is a guy whom we have to put our faith in when it comes to the nuclear button. A guy who's ripping up paper that he's not <laughs> supposed to and throwing it on the floor. Jesus, <laughs> well, help us. <laughs> soon he'll be potty trained. That's the next step. First, we're going to tell him not to rip that up his papers. And some of these quotes from this article are just insane. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the Solomon Lardy guy who's quoted in this article a lot, he's... he's you know, it says he earns an annual salary of $66,000 a year. He's a career government official with close to 30 years under his belt. He's like a, a, you know, a professional in his field. And his job right now is, you know, quote, we got scotch tape, the clear kind. And he says, we found the pieces, we taped them back together. Then you give it back to the supervisor. Imagine how insulting, he even says how insulting it is. He says, I'm looking at my director and saying, are you guys serious? We're making more than $60,000 a year, and we need to be doing far more important things than this. Than this, It felt like the lowest form of work you can take on without having to empty the trash cans. 
I don't know if there's a metaphor more fitting for the Trump administration than Donald Trump sitting at his Oval Office desk, just focused intently on ripping up a piece of paper. So we are now joined by our guest, Cassidy Sedanis from Stanton, Virginia. We went to the Senate Youth Program with him earlier this year in March. Uh, Cassidy, what's up? Hi, it's it's great to talk to you guys. Um, I'm happy to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's a battle going on in your hometown of Stanton, Virginia, and it's the debate as to whether your high school, Robert E. Lee High School, should be renamed or not. And to me, I thought this was really interesting as it's sort of a microcosm of this whole divisive issue regarding Confederate statues and Confederate memorials and basically things that represent uh, that era in our history. Uh, so right. talk to us about what's been going on in your town and your thoughts on the situation. There's there's a lot of history to this issue. Um, before I get into it, uh, I think that it's important to look at this entire issue through the lens of Charlottesville. Um, as I mean, even you guys, I'm, I'm sure you felt it differently across the country. I mean, it it really was a very, very, very significant event, I think, in the history of the entire country. It's like, it's it's a resurgence of hate in ways that we haven't seen since, I mean, in, in, at least in the United States since the 20s and 60s, um, at least this this organized level of it. There's obviously, there's it's it echoes back to times of lynchings. And I think that that has done more to spark the movement to change the name of my former high school than anything has. Um, there have been many who have worked to change it in a, in the past, I mean, 10 years. Um, but I don't think that that talk was ever really taken seriously un, until Charlottesville and um, just the violence that took place there. I think that some of the more centrist people that live in my community uh, took the issue a lot more seriously. And I don't think that that would always be the most expected reaction. But that's definitely pushed forward uh, the the movement for changing the name. But now uh, there's been huge, huge community backlash. Um, at least from about I would say thirty to forty percent of the houses in my entire town probably have signs in front of them, big blue signs that say "Save the name Robert E. Lee High School." And it, just to see that massive demonstration, that organized ignorance, it, it's it's difficult to watch especially in a community that you love that has fostered so i mean fosters a huge diverse community i live in one of the more diverse areas of virginia um or it, i live in a diverse little pond in a in a sea of red um so it's it's hard to watch your community go through that um but as that pertains to charlottesville yeah it, it was definitely this all is resultant of what happened in charlottesville i would say that it's definitely a microcosm of it, it it's it's like a very small scale it's 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 like a you're observing it scientifically you, you're what you're watching this little debate go on in this tiny town that that most likely won't be on the news anytime soon hopefully but it's the exact same issue that happened in charlottesville that's happening across the country this issue of how long can we maintain this lost cause and, and why are so many Americans, why do so many Americans feel attached to the Confederacy and what the Confederacy fought for while trying to distance it from the idea of slavery? How do you see it all ending up? Is there going to be a vote 
uh, to change the name? Um, what, what's your prediction, I guess? Well, what really what fostered the whole the process of the making of these signs and, and the small demonstrations is in our last local election, I believe out of a town that's population is 27,000, we had a voter turnout of 17%, and now the entire school board is totally unanimously for changing the name of the school. Um, there was just such a low turnout that the people who voted were people who wanted to change the name of the school. Um, most of the people who ran were people who wanted to change the name of the school. The few the few candidates who didn't want to change it received the lowest margin of, of votes of anybody who was running. Um, I, the fear now is that now that all of the people who are on the school board are first-term incumbents, that seeing this community backlash that is pretty unprecedented in the history of my city, at least in, in more recent years, is intimidating for them. And I feel that this organized demonstration very likely could stop any motion to change the name. But I also feel that uh, this community has always been um, one for progressing further than other communities in my area and that the school board that had been elected they very well likely might just change the name unanimously. What intimidates me about that is what that might mean for the people who aren't so thrilled about it, what that may mean for people in the surrounding area, because it's what's different than in, in Richmond, they just renamed uh, Jeb Stewart, who is a, a very, very prominent uh, Confederate figure. They renamed Jeb Stewart High School to Barack Obama High School. If that were to happen here, it would be very different than if it happened in Richmond for the same reasons of why Charlottesville was such such a a very unique area. I think that's one thing that being from Virginia, it gives you a more interesting perspective into because I think that from around the country, it may have looked like that there were a lot of protesters in Charlottesville, a lot of people who came, came from areas of rural Virginia. Other, other than the lead organizers, most many many the the man who uh ran down heather Heyer was from ohio a lot of the people who were in charlottesville protesting were from surrounding areas and i fear that if the name of my high school were to be changed that may happen i don't fear that residents of the community may become violent i i fear for the attraction this may have for people like jason kessler who or who organized um in charlottesville so uh seems like as if we're not just having uh issues of uh, race and, um, you know, just uh, what's the history of the slavery left um, within the question of uh, whether a high school's name should be changed, but also we also to be having that issue within the political sphere. So uh, Virginia Republicans just nominated an alt-right hero to run yep. for uh, Senate, and the candidate's name is Corey Stewart, and unfortunately he graduated from Georgetown University, so Hoyas, we gotta do better. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and he even got an endorsement from Trump on Twitter where the yeah, president yeah. said, uh, congratulations, Corey Stewart, for his great victory for Senator from Virginia. Now he wants to get some total stiff. Tim Kaine, who is weak on crime and borders and wants to raise your taxes through the roof. Don't underestimate Corey, <laughs> a major chance of winning. And so, you know, my question to you is, uh, what is the nomination of Corey Stewart as a Republican candidate for the Senate in Virginia? Say about the current political culture of Virginia and our nation, seeing that there's an increase of openly racist candidates running for public office. And what can you tell us about Corey Stewart's and his chance of beating Tim Kaine in November? Well, to answer shortly, I think that his chances of beating Tim Kaine are minimal just simply for the way that 
number one, our political system is set up. Obviously, incumbents have a huge advantage. Uh, people in Virginia absolutely love Tim Kaine. That isn't to say that Corey Stewart has no chance of winning. It's just I, I see that it being very unlikely, um, considering the blue wave that's being predicted for fall, um, that Corey Stewart does win. On the other side, I think that, I mean, that's it. The that's what's more significant about this is the is the population in, in the United States and Virginia. I the 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 idea that the establishment GOP is becoming more and more and more comfortable running alt right and neo Nazi s candidates at the top of their ticket. Um, that culture. I mean, we we've had examples of it in the past. Um, Strom Thurmond. I mean, we, we, it's, it's happened in the past, but I don't think that it, on, the, on this organized scale, it's unprecedented and it's frightening. It's stressful. Um, what it means for the political culture of Virginia, I'm not so sure. I think that Corey Stewart represents a very, I don't know. I don't want to minimize Corey Stewart. He speaks for a segment of the population that feels like they're being left behind uh, by establishment Democrats. And I don't think that those are reasonable fears, but I also don't think that establishment Democrats are doing the right things to combat this. Um, the issues of free speech are not defined by whether or not public funds go towards raising Confederate flags. Um, the issue of free speech is, I mean, I mean, whether or not the government can punish you for speaking your mind. That, I don't think those are the same thing. Um, the significance of Corey Stewart as a candidate, it uh the denial of slavery he's just recently i believe the washington post published it a few days ago he's he's essentially trying to completely uh detach the idea of slavery from the confederate movement and that's something that speaks to a lot of people with confederate heritage around here it's this idea of a of a glorious lost cause something that your forefathers carried on this this crusade against this omnipotent government it's something that they want to carry on but now it interferes with what the truth of history is and that's what makes the high school difficult because changing the name of a high school is not the same as erasing history however trying to claim that slavery had no role in the confederate movement is erasing history um i think that's a larger and larger issue with normalizing candidates like Corey stewart it's just such a huge issue when we normalize candidates who, who want to rewrite history. Well, Cassidy, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Uh, yeah, and thank maybe you, we'll Cassidy. have you back on here sometime. Of course. Else.